Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 60. A communal storm arising. Wow, episode 60. Let's just stop a minute to consider this. Episode 60. Okay, that's done. In the last episode, we left Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa in 1162, very pleased with himself, after he had not only subjugated the Commune of Milan, but actually completely destroyed the city out from under its inhabitants. He had a big celebratory party banquet type thing in Pavia, and on that occasion he wore a crown that he had sworn three years previously that he would not wear again until Milan had been put in its place. Once the heavy-duty partying was done, he was almost ready to head back to Germany. He nominated a whole series of imperial podesta to rule over the Italian cities. For example, in Milan, he appointed Henry of Liege. We mentioned the figure of the podesta a few episodes back. Basically, after around half a century of communal organization, the cities realized that the consul approach needed a bit of perfection. So, the figure of the single administrator or magistrate, the podesta, arose. This was not a return to hereditary power of dukes or counts, but a temporary figure nominated by the city authorities who had to respond to those authorities and follow the statute of the commune they were governing. In the case at hand, we had a podesta nominated by the emperor, who would therefore be more inclined to answer to him, and that could spell trouble for the future. You may also be wondering what exactly Henry of Liege would be the podesta of if Milan was a big pile of rubble. Well, in the end, Barbarossa gave the Milanese permission to rebuild, and soon enough, huts and later houses popped up like mushrooms. Frederick returned to Germany in 1162, marking the end of his second expedition into Italy. Things with the new administrations went okay, at first. Then, when the taxes started to rise and the citizens were made to perform forced labour, the first signs of unrest started to show again. Even the ever-faithful-to-the-empire Lodi started to grumble at this point. Also, towers and castles for the imperial representatives and the loyal families such as the Savoy, the Monferrato and the Ezzelino, started to dot the countryside. A sort of reminder that Big Brother was watching you. People really don't like to be watched by Big Brother. In 1163, Frederick made his third descent into Italy, 
But this was not exactly a military venture. He came to witness the official transfer of Lodi to its new location and the consecration of the church of San Bassiano. He then made his way to Pavia, where a flow of delegations from the communes came to complain about the situation with the imperial administrators. Barbarossa listened to all, but did nothing, ignoring the early warning signs in the certainty that the lessons he had taught to cities such as Milan and Crema would be enough. While he was still in Italy, Pope Victor IV died. You will remember that this was the imperial anti-pope that countered Pope Alexander III. This could have been an opportunity to solve the schism situation by coming to terms with Alexander. But the emperor was evidently not interested, and he had Pope Pascal III elected. This gave Pope Alexander all the more reason to continue to egg the northern communes on against Frederick, leveraging the discontent with the imperial representatives. Indeed, it was not long before the city of Bologna assassinated its representative, Bizo, which is quite serious, but he did have a rather funny name, Bizo. Anyway, Piacenza was then a little less drastic and sent off their imperial representative, Barbavara, who managed to run off with everything he could take with him from the church of Sant'Antonio. Over in the east, Verona also rebelled, egged on by Venice, who saw the unrest caused by the imperial rule as an opportunity to extend its influence. The city of Verona, along with Vicenza, Padova and Treviso, formed the Veronensis Societatis, the League of Verona, in 1168. The communes had finally realized that the only way for them to resist the power of the empire was to band together. The first sign of unity was soon to spell very bad news for Barbarossa. The emperor didn't have much of an army with him at the time, so he contented himself with harrying the countryside a bit, and then making his way back to Germany, marking the end of the third descent. By the way, don't worry about remembering which descent we're at and how many he did in total, because, well, you don't really need to. Now, we've just mentioned that Pope Alexander spent a lot of time egging on the communes against Emperor Barbarossa. The most obvious reason for this was because the emperor kept supporting the rival pope. But he was also convinced that Barbarossa had in mind the unification of the Italian peninsula, and that obviously also included the papal states. Not only then did he continue to ferment discontent in the communes, but he also sent emissaries to European courts and even to Constantinople in an attempt to set up a pincer move on the German emperor. It was in August of 1165 that the Pope made his most provocative move. At the time, he was still hanging around in Europe. Now, he made his way home to Rome.
Barbarossa was not impressed at all. By the next year, he was ready to come and teach Alexander one of his patented lessons. He made his way down to his usual first stop, Lodi, and then to Bologna, which seemed to have repented after killing the imperial representative and opened its gates to the emperor and showered him with gold. The army then made its way down to Ancona and laid siege to the city. Indeed, the taking of Ancona would then have made it very difficult for the Byzantines to make a safe landing if they ever decided to get involved. While the siege of Ancona proceeded, the imperial chancellor, Reynold, took a contingent, including 4,000 knights, down to Rome. The Pope, having heard of the advancing army, hastily put together a much larger force, but was sorely defeated, with thousands dead, injured or taken prisoner. The Pope then barricaded himself in St. Peter's, and the imperial troops laid siege for eight days before they were able to enter, turning the holy site once again into a battleground strewn with bodies and stained with blood. It was at this point that Barbarossa entered with Pascal and had himself crowned again with his empress, Beatrix. Meanwhile, Pope Alexander managed to escape to the tower of the Frangipane family, where he received emissaries from the northern king, offering money and ships for his escape. He took the money, but sent the ships away. Frederick then offered him peace terms if he would accept, if he would accept to abdicate, which he quickly refused, and escaped the city dressed as a pilgrim. Frederick thought this time around it might be a good idea to leave his Pope in a pacified situation, unlike at the time of Hadrian IV. So, he offered to recognize the Roman Senate and cancel the taxes for the city. Needless to say, the Romans were more than happy to accept. So now, things were looking pretty good. Frederick had installed his Pope in Rome and ousted Alexander, although he was still on the loose, and now Frederick was also on good terms with the Romans themselves. Unfortunately, nature was not in on the deal. In August of 1167, a terrible epidemic of malaria hit Rome, killing citizens and imperial soldiers without distinction. The death toll rose up to the thousands, so much so that there was a shortage of wood to burn the infested bodies with, so they ended up being thrown into the Tiber River. The disease took some of Barbarossa's best nobles and generals such as Guelph VII and his Chancellor, Reynold of Dassel. Frederick had no choice but to head back to Pavia. In a rather sudden and unexpected turn of events, the emperor found himself besieged in Pavia by the Milanese. He stayed there and resisted until March of 1168, but then, leaving Henry of Diaz as lieutenant in Italy, he headed back up to Burgundy, thus putting an end to his fourth expedition. He would not return for another six years. So what on earth had happened 
in that fateful 1167 that took us from Milan being reduced to a pile of rubble to the Milanese besieging the emperor at Pavia for months on end. Well, you will remember we mentioned that 1164 the League of Verona had been formed. The idea caught on quite well, so much so that on the 7th of April 1167 at the monastery of Pontida near the city of Bergamo, representatives from the cities of Milan, Cremona, Brescia, Bergamo and Mantua formed an alliance pact, the Lombardie Societatis, better known as the Lega Lombarda, the Lombard League. Mind you, this is no longer Lombard as in the people, but Lombard as in Lombardy, the region of Italy. The event came to be known as the Oath of Pontida, and legend would have it that the delegates swore with unsheathed swords crossed upon a Bible. Their first order of business was to rebuild Milan, which they did, while their second was to get Lodi on board. It was still an important market town, and they couldn't afford to have a pro-imperial city right in their midst. First, a peaceful delegation from Camorna was sent to try and convince them. They refused. However, when they saw a band of allied cities besieging them and threatening them with extermination, the whole Lombard League business didn't quite seem like such a bad idea after all. They came on board with the clause that they would maintain their loyalty to the emperor. Perhaps they expected Barbarossa to think they were starting a big multi-city book club or some sort of sporting event. On the 1st of December, the League was joined by Venice, Verona, Padova, Vicenza, Treviso, Bologna, Modena, Parma and Piacenza and Ferrara and became the Italic League bringing the total up to 16 cities. It is very easy to overestimate such an event. Indeed, nationalist historians and political movements have turned it into a shining moment of Italian, in some cases specifically northern Italian, unity in the face of a foreign invader. The truth is that it was more of an alliance of convenience in the face of a difficult situation, and soon enough, the cities would break off and start fighting amongst each other again. However, the events of those years have echoed throughout the centuries to contemporary Italy. Indeed, the party which, according to current opinion polls, would go over 35% of the Italian vote if we were to vote today, the League, started out as this little series of local independent movements which blamed the South and Rome for keeping back the highly industrious northern regions. The various leagues that sprung up in the late 1980s and early 1990s, such as the Lega Veneta and the Lega Lombarda, ended up coming together to form a party called the Northern League, La Lega Nord, whose final objective was secession of northern Italy, which they called Padania, from the rest of the country. Although none of them seemed to completely agree on what exactly the borders of this Padania would be. 
The whole secession business was dropped later as the party became mainstream, and now, rather than a movement of northern independence, it is a nationalist Italian movement, strongly anti-immigration. They had, and have to this day, a lot of folkloristic events, meeting every year in Pontida to commemorate the formation of the Lega Lombarda in 1167. For the moment, we'll stay in the past, in 1168, with Barbarossa having gone back to Germany to sort out his vassals there. For the first time in his reign, the communes of northern Italy were not just squabbling and bullying each other, waiting to be picked off one by one by a descending imperial army. This time, if Frederick Barbarossa was intent on making his way back down, they were ready for a fight. As always, thanks very much to everyone for listening. Thanks in particular to my lovely Patreon supporters, the Anita and Giuseppe Garibaldi level, Ed, Jeff, Joshua, Sean and Jimmy, the Matilda Di Canossa and Giuseppe Mazzini level, Aaron, Benjamin, Lorenzo, Maddie, Mattia, Roberta, Scott and YR, the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Anthony, Ben, Silane, Chris, Dean, Ignacio, Jay, Caitlin, Kevin, Shelby, Stephen and Vincent, and the top level Maria Montessori and Dante Alighieri level Sen, Paolo and Reactionary Venetian. Remember that you can get in touch with questions, comments, just to say hello, complain, possibly not too much. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com At the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, you can click through to our social media. We are on Facebook and on Twitter and you can find maps and timelines to help navigate our country's complicated history. Until next episode, thanks very much again for listening, and arrivederci. Okay, settle down, settle down. Now, if we're all ready here in this lovely monastery of Pontida to swear an oath of allegiance among our fair cities, we can then move on to our first order of business, the rebuilding of Milan. Excuse me? Yes? When? What? When are we going to rebuild Milan? I don't know. As soon as possible, I suppose. It's just that I have to help my cousin Giovanni take his pigs to market on Tuesday and I have this thing on Wednesday, so maybe we could start next Thursday? What? Well, all right then. We will swear the oath and then starting next Thursday... Around tea time. Oh, whatever. Okay, next Thursday we'll start the rebuilding of Milan around tea time. Um, what now? Well, since we're heading in that direction, could we all just stop off and fix my garden fence? What? I mean, we're setting the basis for an unprecedented... Oh, never mind. Okay, if it gets things done, we'll fix the flipping fence. 
So, if there are no further interruptions, we'll swear the oath the next Thursday around tea time, we'll head to Milan, fix Giuliano's fence, and then start the rebuilding of Milan. Everyone happy with that? Yes. yes. Now, the next order of business after rebuilding Milan will be to find a way to resist the Emperor Barbarossa. Do we use the term resist? What? Well, I mean, it sounds a little bit violent. What would you suggest, pray tell? How about give a decisive yet friendly scolding after offering him a nice cup of tea? Oh, good lord, this league thing is never going to go very far. Sentire Media Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentiri Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com. That's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com and find out how to submit your show.